From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We now know where Colorado's new 8th congressional district will be and how all the other ones change. The Independent Redistricting Commission submitted its map in the nick of time. We had to make decisions in every aspect of our constitutional requirements, but I feel that we held to what those requirements were. What's next? We'll ask CPR's Benta Berkland. Then we remember Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jim Sheeler, who made it his goal to remember others. I realized that there were so many stories that we were losing, and this was the last chance to tell them. And this was my chance to tell them. And so I decided to pick one person, preferably, who'd never been in the newspaper before. And each week I would write a long obituary about their life that really told a story. Need more reusable bags to get you ready for Colorado's ban on plastic bags? There are several can't-get-them-anywhere-else options to pick from when you start your membership today. Well-made and sturdy, these CPR-branded thank-you gifts are fun and functional ways to show off your support for unbiased news and inspiring music. And you should be proud. As a member, you help make great radio happen. Donate at CPR.org and thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Morner. Colorado has a new congressional map if the state Supreme Court approves. The Independent Redistricting Commission got behind a map late, late last night. Maybe I should add a third late. It was just before the midnight deadline. And here to walk us through what the districts look like, what they mean for Colorado politics, and what it took to reach an agreement is CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. Benta, thank you for the late work and early morning. Why don't we start with what Colorado's congressional delegation as a whole might look like with this map? Well, there's not a big shakeup from the current configuration. There would be four safe Democratic seats, three safe Republican seats, same as the breakdown right now. But what it does do is ensure that Colorado's new 8th congressional district is extremely competitive, basically evenly split. Evenly split. This new 8th district, that was the big news all along. Colorado has grown enough that it was allocated an additional seat in the U.S. House. So where did commissioners end up putting it? It's north of the Denver metro, so it includes Commerce City, as well as parts of Arvada and Broomfield. It stretches north to Greeley along the east side of I-25. Pretty much all of the various map proposals put the 8th district north of Denver. This just reflects the massive growth that part of the state has experienced in the last decade. And the way the commission drew it, this 8th district isn't just the state's most competitive seat. It will also be the most ethnically diverse. It's almost 40 percent Latino and a little more than 50 percent. I mean, it is a competitive district that might include a city like Arvada and a city like Greeley, a fascinating district. Uh, In your article at CPR.org, you write that the 7th Congressional District sees one of the biggest border shifts going from being entirely based in Denver's northwest suburbs to covering all of Jefferson County as well as a wide swath of central mountain communities. And uh, Democrats say their advantage narrows in the 7th now, which is represented by Ed Perlmutter. Venta, you were listening to the final meeting last night when the commissioners agreed on a map. Describe the scene for us. Well, the commission was really debating trade-offs, how much to prioritize 
keeping communities together versus creating competitive districts, whether they should rewrite the map to keep more of Southern Colorado together, how many Republican and Democratic seats should the state have to fairly match its political makeup, how best to represent rural areas. The same issues came up throughout this process, and it was still hard for them to agree up till the very end. Unaffiliated Commissioner Musa Duara kind of summed up the impossibility of getting to a perfect map. There is just no way we are going to have any map that is now going to divide someplace, somewhere, no matter how you do it. What would have happened if they hadn't reached an agreement? The process is set up for that to happen. In that case, a map drawn by the nonpartisan staff would have automatically been submitted to the state Supreme Court. The map the commission chose was quite close to that default map, but they were really focused on making sure that they did get to the point of approving a map. This is the first time Colorado has used an independent redistricting commission, and the commission clearly wanted to fulfill all of their responsibilities. Here's the commission's chair, unaffiliated voter Carly Hare, describing how they got to that final map. This map that we have now approved as our final map has iterated on the comments, the community insight, the connections that we shared. We had to make decisions in every aspect of our constitutional requirements, but I feel that we held to what those requirements were. One thing she mentions is that all of this public input they received to draw the map A lot of the commissioners talked about how important that public input was to help them decide which communities to try to keep together. And you say communities. The law spells out what sorts of communities ought to be kept together. You mentioned urban versus rural, um, but this is also communities that share public policy concerns, maybe water or transportation, racial and ethnic communities as well. And as much talk as there is of politics in this, the language is explicit that communities of interest does not include relationships with political parties, incumbents or political candidates. Although, of course, competitiveness is a major topic here. Uh, What happens next, Benta? So the staff submits this map to the court by Friday, and that's followed by legal arguments for how the commission met the constitutional criteria. The map could still be challenged if groups or parties think the commission didn't get it right. If the justices agree it needs tweaks, they could send the congressional map back to the commission and they would have to approve it before the end of the year. All right. You'll keep us abreast. I know you will. Thanks, Benta. Thanks, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Her story on Colorado's new congressional districts is at CPR.org. And of course, it includes a map. Now, let's remember a man who spent his career remembering others. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jim Sheeler, formerly of the Rocky Mountain News, died earlier this month at age 53. He spent his career crafting the obituaries of everyday people whose deaths might have been the first and last time their stories were shared with the public. In his book, Obit, he collected some of those pieces, recounting the lives of a deli owner, a precocious teenager, and a teacher struggling with alcoholism. We spoke in 2007. One uh, of the obituaries that I found exceptionally moving is about 15-year-old Daniel Seltzer. I'd like you to tell me how you decided to write about him. 
it was after I'd been writing obituaries for a little while, and uh, his mother had just emailed me and said, my son wasn't a star football player. He wasn't ever in the newspaper before, but he died at home the other day, and uh, I'd like for you to tell his story. And so uh, I went over to the Seltzer's house, and um, when Fern Seltzer brought out this code of morals that he had written when he was young, I knew that that I had found the story right then. You weave the various morals that he writes uh, into the obituary. Tell me more about this this code. It was uh, it it's so amazing um, that a fifteen year old would write this um, just on his own with no prompting, just sort of a, a, a code of rules to to live by. What really got me was the um, basically the ending. You know, he goes through all these very philosophical morals of dealing with religion, um, dealing with uh, stress and trouble, and um, how to cope with with things that his mother would end up coping with. And um, it was almost an instruction booklet for her um, on how to live after he was gone. And he had originally written ten. 10 morals, 10 codes. And then um, just a a couple of days before he died, he wrote one more. And uh, it was number 11. And it was, nothing is of more importance than love. And that's how the obituary ends, I think. Yes. How do you decide who to write about? I mean, you mentioned, you know, that young man wasn't a star football player. You know, it's not that his name had been in the paper before. That was that was actually my key in, in starting these. When I was first uh, starting out um, at a little newspaper, my job was to type in the obituaries that came over the fax machine every day from the, the funeral homes. And I realized that there were so many stories that we were losing, and this was the last chance to tell them. And this was my chance to tell them. And so I decided to pick one person, preferably, who'd never been in the newspaper before. And each week I would write a long obituary about their life that really told a story, not just the typical, you know, uh, New York Times lead that begins the same way and ends with the list of survivors, but a real story that you would tell about somebody's life if you were sitting around a campfire or at the dinner table trying to explain to somebody how someone else lived. But isn't that a challenge when, you know, they weren't the first person to do something or they weren't this huge historical figure? Um, it's really not a challenge. It's, the challenge is just going to the home, um, sitting down in the place where somebody lived, the place where somebody worked, and trying to get a feel for their life, um, looking through the bookshelves for the the dog-eared page of their favorite book or their favorite passage, um, looking through scrapbooks and asking what we don't see in those pictures. Um, and uh, sometimes you just find the most amazing things. And in the case of even a, a businessman who was just a you know straight-laced corporate engineer, um, sometimes you can find absolute hidden gems. Is that the exploding turkeys obit? That's right. That's right. Uh, Bob Druva... Um, was pretty much a straight-laced engineer and corporate vice president. Um, But when you get into his life a little bit more and dig around with his family, uh, they brought out uh, a cookbook, the kind of um, neighborhood cookbooks that that, uh, different neighborhoods will create, everybody contributing their own recipe. And his was absolutely hilarious. And um, it's one of the things, a lot of these obituaries, you you can actually laugh out loud at them, as you should. Um, There's people who were were really funny in life, and they remain able to give you a smile after their death. In this case, his recipe was for an exploding turkey that was filled with popcorn. Correct, correct. And so you you will browse through books 
uh, you say, uh, browse through photographs. I gather that means you always do this in person. I do. That was one of the things from the beginning was that I didn't want to do any interviews over the telephone. I wanted to do them all in person so that I could find the stuff of life that's left. Not, 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 not what's gone, but what remains. In doing that, you're able to hold pieces of their life and, um, and figure out a little bit more of who they really were. Do you ever learn anything that the survivors didn't know about their loved one? I mean, in going through old documents or journals or... Sure, sure. The, um, uh, probably the, the most investigative obituary in the, the book is, um, and the one I'm most proud of, was Johnny Richardson, who uh, really nobody knew. Um, but everybody knew him. Everybody knew who he was, but very few knew uh, his real story. He spent years at Stapleton shining shoes for people, looking up at them and listening to their stories. But few people ever bothered to ask about his story. And uh, when it ran, his was the shortest obituary on the page. And this is all it, it said. Jonathan Johnny Richardson of Denver, a shoeshine worker, died August 13th, 1999 in Denver. He was 74. No services were held. He was born June 24th, 1925. His interest was listening to jazz. There are no immediate survivors. And there was so much more to his story. Everybody in all these jazz clubs knew him as well, and the shoeshine community, which there is one, <laughs> really did know him. And, um, and that his, uh, his former girlfriend told me that he had all these stories that someday he wished to tell, and someday he wished to write a book about them. And um, in many ways, I think this book is his as well. What attracted you to obit writing? It's a place where you can meet people and really find this sort of raw emotional place that they're in where they, um, they often, often offer up these nuggets of wisdom that you, you can find nowhere else. Um, you know, sitting with a man who um, had lost his wife of uh, uh, more than 50 years, and we talked all day, um, and uh, he made me dinner, and then huh. we finally ran out of things to say, and it was quiet. And he just said, listen, you never realize how much noise an old woman makes until she's gone. Hmm. In, in that very vulnerable state, aren't people more apt to say all of the good things about someone um, and, and, and paint, you know, maybe, maybe a rosier picture of them posthumously than they would have in life. Sure, sure. It's, I think we're, we're sort of programmed not to say, speak ill of the dead, right. but um, it's, it's really required in order to paint uh, a real picture of someone. And so to, how do you get there? Um, you know, I, I usually talk about how, you know, I'm not a saint. You know, I'm sure my wife could fill a whole reporter's notebook with my faults and um, start with a little bit of their faults and their foibles and make the person realize that our struggles are what also define us. You know, you hear the same things over and over again, but when you challenge somebody and you say, okay, well, did you ever see him give the shirt off of his back? Um, they, they have to think. And um, during one interview, a woman said, well, you know, yeah, actually, um, she, one time we were walking along uh, in Denver and she, she took off her shoes and gave them to a homeless person. Now, that's the story. It's getting, not it's the getting, cliche. Yeah, getting behind the cliche. Absolutely. Um, one example of this is uh, Travis Anderson. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Travis. Travis Sanderson um, was one of the stories I did after I started uh, covering the war. And um, I made a, a point that I was going to tell the stories of these soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors um, as real people, who they were. And um, 
Travis's foibles pretty much defined him as a young boy. Um, and him getting his life together really was the key part of him joining the army. And um, it was also the tragic part because by doing that, he ended up sacrificing his life. And you're sitting, I believe, with a lot of his friends uh, around a table or something like mm-hmm. that. And they're going on about all of the good things, but they just get to a moment of sort of brutal honesty about him, I guess. Yes, yes. They they called him a mean, ornery little something I can't say on the radio. Something you can't say on the radio. And, and you included that in the obituary. Absolutely. Um, I think they thought it was crucial uh, to include that part of his life. The experience of reading this book and reading multiple obituaries in a row also serves as a kind of obituary for some of the state's disappearing places. Uh, I mean, you go well outside of, you know, Metro Denver to to find these stories. And I wonder if you might tell us about a place you visited. There's uh, Merino, Colorado, um, up in northeastern Colorado, where um, I had Albert Albrand's family drive me down the street looking at all of the closed shops that were vibrant while he was alive, but had since faded. And um, it really told the story of this this dying town. Jim, lastly, I guess in, in reading this book, I realized that it is possible to miss someone I never knew, uh, which is, a, I guess, a new feeling for me. Do you feel that way, to, to miss someone you never met? Absolutely. Um, that's the one regret that, uh, that I have, is that I wasn't able to meet so many of these people. Um, and is that the definition of a good obituary? I think it would be to to have felt that uh, you you knew this person even when you didn't, and um, that there are so many other people out there that you still have a chance to get to know. Jim Sheeler is speaking with me in 2007. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his stories about Colorado soldiers killed in the Iraq War as he followed the man who notified their families of the deaths. After he left the Rocky Mountain News, Sheeler taught journalism at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio. His death at age 53 prompted his colleagues and mentees to post fond memories to social media. They remembered his guiding philosophy. To really learn something, you have to be prepared to listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Members help make great radio happen. If you want the facts and good music, if you want something unique that shows you support CPR, donate. Then choose one of the new thank you gifts at CPR.org. The wildfire burning near Silverthorne reminds us that fire season has grown. It's no longer confined to hot summer days, and it means finding more ways to reduce fire risk. As CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports, that doesn't always have to involve heavy machinery or pesticides. It's a busy morning at a trailhead outside of Carbondale, south of Glenwood Springs. Hillary Boyd, a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, is here to tell dog walkers to keep their pups on a leash because... Around 1,000 goats are going to be showing up this morning. It's going to take two loads of four horse trailers to get all of the animals here. The trailers and trucks pull up to the trailhead at Sudi Ranch. As each door is opened, hundreds of goats jump out into the gravel parking lot and head straight for the closest grassy hill. All of them immediately start eating. This is what the goats are here to do. Eat, poop, and stomp around to grind their manure into the soil, which adds nutrients and helps the ground hold moisture. 
since some of this land was used to raise livestock, it's growing wheatgrass. Boyd says that's good for cattle and sheep, but it's not great for wildlife. So our hope is if we can kick back some of these grasses, improve the soil, and make room for some other more desirable plants to grow, the fields are going to be even more valuable for wildlife. Lonnie Malmberg is a goat herder. This is one of the first projects she's worked on with the BLM. She calls to her border collie, Roscoe, to move the goats to where she needs them. Roscoe, over here. Then she and her intern unroll a portable electric fence around the herd, which quietly chews away at the ground. We live in a camper very near the goats on every job we do. So when the goats move, we move. This herd has been about 7,000 miles since April when I went to California with them for a fire mitigation job. Malmberg grew up raising cattle and went to graduate school at Colorado State University to study weed management. There, she learned that goats are really good at eating weeds and clearing up pesky plants. She realized goats could be used instead of pesticides to manage public and private land. She thought, Man, that'd be a great idea if somebody would do that. Not me, somebody. But I didn't think I would do it. Well, then later, I bought 100 head of cashmere goats and started in 1996. And I say I'm the one who never quit. Malmberg's goats move around the country to work on different land management projects. They clear noxious weeds, help with erosion control along rivers, and they eat brush that could fuel big wildfires. Malmberg says she's doing that now more than ever before. We have less and less water to work with, more fires, hotter temperatures, the record-breaking heat. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Climate change means hotter and drier conditions in the West, which means more wildfires. When Malmberg and the goats are done here at Sudi Ranch, she'll pack them up and move them to another BLM project. There, they'll clear oak brush near where Grizzly Creek fire burned in 2020. Malmberg's goats were grazing that spot when the fire broke out. The fire was terrifying. We had 1,100 goats up there. We ran down that mountain pulling fence and getting equipment, and my son Donnie with a dog was running the herd, and the bears and mountain lions were running with us. We're all running together. Using goats means the BLM doesn't have to bring out heavy machinery to clear away brush or use pesticides to kill the weeds or lots of water to grow new plants. We need to help BLM and Forest Service get moving with new ways to take care of this land because the cost of these fires just in Colorado last year, the cost of the mudslides this year from the fires last year, that is borne by the people. Hillary Boyd, the wildlife biologist with the BLM, wants to use the goats for another project. The agency cleared wildfire fuel from an area 15 years ago, but now those plants are starting to grow back. And it may not be possible to clear that land with a controlled fire. Because our summers have been so dry and because of the proximity to private land, we're thinking that having the goats go in and eat back the brush might be the best way to maintain the treatment. The goats will be back here eating weeds and brush at Sudi Ranch next year, and possibly for the next decade. Boyd says she's happy to work with the goats, even if the job takes a little longer. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. There's a song that generations of kids have learned all over the world about a clock. Here's a 1908 recording by the Haydn Quartet. My grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on the floor. It was taller by half than the old man himself, so it weighed not a penny weight more. 
In the 1950s, Burl Ives sang a bittersweet version. His life seconds numbering. Tick-tock, tick-tock, but it stopped short, never to go again when the old man died. Well, a real-life clock inspired the song, My Grandfather's Clock, and Dan Parker of Centennial grew up with that clock, which was in, as you might guess, his grandfather's house. This was in Massachusetts. The clock remains in a family home back east. And Dan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Describe this clock for us. What did it look like? I assume it was quite tall. It was seven feet, four inches tall. Oh. And that extra four inches were a set of three finials that were on the top of the clock, one on each side and one in the middle. Finials, little decorations, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, spiky decorations. And those are the original finials that were on the clock when it was built in sometime in 1790. Well, the first time I was aware of it, I was about uh, five years old or so. We lived on the second floor of the farmhouse, and my grandparents with the clock lived on the first floor. It was an eight-day clock that you had to wind every seven or eight days, or it would stop. Yeah. And that's where the line in the, in the song came from, because the clock did stop the afternoon that the old man died, because the old man was the only one that wound that clock. And he'd wound it a week before, and he became sick and died on the eighth day, and the clock stopped. Oh, it's helpful to have that background. How did the clock come into your family's possession? What's the deal here? Well, it was built and bought by a family member around 1790, 1792, something like that. We don't have any first-hand account of who, who bought it and when. We just have to go by the clues that the song gives us. Oh, the song gives you a clue. Yeah, 90 years it stood on the, car, on the floor. Yeah. That's the clue. And that was in 1876 or maybe a year or two earlier. No, that's exactly right. The song was written by Henry C. Work in 1876. He also, by the way, wrote Wake Nicodemus and The Ship That Never Returned. I understand that uh, the composer, Mr. Work, had a tie to your family. What was that tie? He was, he was married to my second great aunt. And then he somehow learned about this imposing well, clock. They, they would come to visit her folks, and it was right there. The <laughs> clock was right there in the house. And so imposing, in fact, that he wrote a song about it. And, yeah. and the song really is kind of a mini-biography of a grandfather, uh, seemingly told through the eyes of a child. Now, the clock has moved a lot over the years. It usually follows the male heir in your family. The eldest son. The eldest son. I'll say that despite a, a lack of family documentation, the Smithsonian has said that your family's clock is indeed the one the song is based on. So the clock remains in Massachusetts, right? You didn't bring it out yeah. to Colorado. Why, why not bring it out here? Well, because it spent its entire life in a, cl- a humid climate yeah, <laughs> and something that's over 2,000 miles away. And we were afraid if we moved it out here, it would not stand the move or the relocation. So I signed off, and it went to my younger brother, but mm. it was my turn. And so he's the one that had it, and now he's died, and his oldest son has it. Dan, uh, the clock has not gone unscathed 
through That's the right. years. I understand there was a little accident at one point. Yes. The young lady was driving up the highway, uh, the road up to the, toward the house. There was a curve in the road about, uh, I don't know, 50 yards out from the house. And she, this was at one o'clock in the morning. She fell asleep and she didn't make that turn. The car came across the field between two great big elm, uh, maple trees and hit to the corner of the house where the clock was. It destroyed the case, but it didn't damage the works and it didn't break even break the finials on the top, but it shattered the case and the pendulum went across the room, through the wall, right across the bedroom where my parents were sleeping below in the bed and lodged in the outside wall of the house. Wow. The next day, they picked up all the pieces from the clock and spread them out on the barn floor. Then they got a, a cabinet maker from the Berkshires that came down and he said, I can rebuild that clock. Dan, do you miss the clock? Is it hard to be away from it? Well, yeah, it's difficult to be away from it, but I'm so happy I'm not living in New England. <laughs> I like to visit New England, but I don't want to live it there. Well, that seems like a perfect way to end an interview for Colorado Matters. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate you spending the time with us. Okay. Dan Parker lives at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial. He grew up with the clock that inspired the song, My Grandfather's Clock. We spoke in March. My grandfather's clock was to last for the shelf. So it stood 90 years on the floor. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, and I'm Ryan Warner. This is listener-supported CPR News. You can give at CPR.org. Whatever amount works for you works for us. This is Colorado Matters. <laughs>